Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Democratic candidate for governor of Texas, Wendy Davis, has more balls than Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz came here to throw bombs and fundraise off of attacks on fellow Republicans. He's a joke, plain and simple. He's an amateur, a fraud, a hypocrite, a wacko bird. Ah, oh, Ted Cruz. Campaign fraudsters, part three, let's go. Welcome back. We are still on Ted Cruz. Can you believe it? We're never going to give up. I'm Cena Gazdavi at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is here with us as well. Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy. You were saying before we started here, you're glad we're talking more about Ted Cruz. Justin, tell me more. I'm glad we're talking about him because uh, I like Ted a lot, actually. I came out of the first episode <laughs> thinking, you know what? He saved a life. In Mexico, I'm warming up. I'm he warming up to bad. him a little bit. Yeah, I'm warming up to him a little bit. I, I will say, as unlikable as he is, like you know, just you know, as a dude, um, I, I need to get more into his fraudiness. Um, so I'm happy. Yeah, that we're gonna do and that. the roots, the fruits of the fraudiness, I think, also help bring him up because I went through his autobiography some more. Because you brought it, you brought it up, and I was like, I should get dig into this a little bit more. Yeah, he's just like a little less like, um, you know, some of our fraudsters start doing stuff like right away, like like they, you could right. tell they're the devil by their time they're seventeen, <laughs> 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 and, you, and you're just waiting for it. Yeah, but you know, like one thing that stuck out to me was when I went to go get his autobiography and I bought the whatever Kindle version and I also bought the audio book because I figured like any other politician he would do his own voice you know and, and they'd be great for us turns out he only did the first chapter <laughs> what? what 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 do you it's your it's your autobiography auto you is, is that Latin is that what that is, lad? <laughs> what is? Well, how's how's it credited? Is it like Ted Cruz with Johnny something? Like yeah, on the audio book it is. Yeah, so we have some stuff. But first, I have some clips because you mentioned earlier 
Um, how does he bring his kind of Cuban heritage into his story a little bit? Mm-hmm. And in the autobiography, he brings it up. He brings up his international roots. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this segment from the from the book. When the USS Maine was sunk in the port of Havana in 1898, it precipitated the Spanish-American War. At President William McKinley's urging, Congress declared war against Spain in April of that year. American troops landed near Santiago on the southeastern end of the island and made Guantanamo Bay their base of operations. Parenthetical, that base remains a renowned U.S. military outpost to this day. I don't know if renowned is the right word that I would use there for Gitmo. Yeah, what, what year was this book published? 1998? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's not renowned post 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> During this short-lived war, Teddy Roosevelt achieved national acclaim by leading his, quote, Rough Riders to successfully conquering the Spaniards and take San Juan Hill. A few months later, the United States and Spain signed a treaty granting Cuba its independence. It was to this fledgling nation that my great-grandparents arrived in 1902 from the Canary Islands. Augustine and Maria Cruz boarded a ship with their infant son, Rafael, bound for the New World. Their hearts were filled with anticipation, a sense of adventure, and a single ambition to own their own farm. Like, how did he get this? Like, that's a really... It's amazing how he puts his story in the context of American history when it's actually not related. He's like, by the way, here's America's history of intervention with Cuba, and then my parents come after. Yeah, and but they're not they're no. not directly they're not directly linked in any any way. <laughs> they just came, yeah, they came over. But Augustine died in 1917, one of the millions of lives claimed by a worldwide influenza epidemic. Hmm. Maria was left a widow with six children, overcome by despair and depression. This seems dramatic. Maria ended up being swindled out of their farm. The family had lost everything. Maria and her children were forced to move to a sugarcane plantation. And in exchange for her older boys, including Raphael, cutting sugarcane all day, they could live in a hut with a dirt floor. Honestly, like, I don't, this reeks of, like, how, how Elizabeth Holmes was told she was indigenous. Like mm-hmm. some story and then completely inflated to the point where you're you're writing it as it's like a first person account from primary sourced articles. <laughs> like you've got the journals of of your great great grandmother somehow, or the great grandmother. <laughs> Life at the plantation was hard. There were a hundred or so huts built in a circle, forming a small village. There was only one general store in the village owned by the sugar mill where the workers bought everything from food to tools to clothes and shoes. The store gave the families credit, and the sugar mill paid their salaries through the general store, which then took the money to pay their debt and, in theory, give them any remaining money. But, of course, no money ever remained, and the arrangement essentially led to perpetual servitude. So they were they – were, what do you call that? What is that little kind of when the company owns the town – Debt peonage. Yeah. That's what we call that. This was fascinating. I actually expected Ted Cruz's uh, American story to say our family fled the, you know, the oppression of the Fidel Castro regime, but it's the exact opposite. His family is actually the people that would have actually benefited from the revolution. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if you're like a poor, like, sugarcane laborer, it's That's like you're going to you actually, want. like— yeah, yeah. It's like these would have been the people that would have probably supported Castro. 
And that's what his his grandfather did here. Raphael would later escape that servitude and what seems like completely disappearing from his family. Uh, and then his got, grandfather got married. Like he was he was down with the cause. Okay. So then there's so then there's this from the grandfather. Okay. Um, and and I think a generous interpretation of this story is to say that his his grandfather was just a hustler, or you yeah. could say that this is literally how a fraudster passes on <laughs> their their <laughs> skills and talents. Needing to find a new way to provide for his young family, uh, his grandfather had a fruit stand that went under. Raphael became a commission salesman for RCA. One of his favorite sales methods was called the puppy dog close derived from the easiest way to sell a dog. Needing to find a way to provide for his young family, Rafael became a commission salesman for RCA. When television came into Cuba, my grandfather would urge prospective customers to try out a TV for a little while, for free. At any point in time, he had a couple of dozen TVs on loan to different people. He would run across you on the street and say, there is a great boxing match on TV this Saturday. Or... Elvis Presley is going to be on a TV show next week, followed by, why don't I lend you a TV so you and your family can watch? They often replied, but I don't want to buy a TV. (laughs) (laughs) To which the grandfather would respond, who is talking about buying? I've got a half dozen TVs and you can keep one for a couple weeks. I'll pick it up when I need it. Then, after a couple weeks, he would come by their house on Saturday morning, right in the middle of Saturday cartoons. He'd knock on the door, walk into the living room, and reach over and unplug the TV. Then he'd pick it up and begin walking out of the house. Inevitably, the kids who had been watching cartoons would scream and cry, and the parents would be desperate to mollify their children my grandfather sold a lot of TVs on Saturday mornings. <laughs> That's this like a horrific like, story. Why did you tell that? <laughs> Just say he's a TV salesman, Ted. Why did you, <laughs> you should have said he hustled his way of selling TVs. That's a, like, why would you do that? Why would you tell anyone that story that your father took advantage of, like, tired parents and the sensitivity of children? <laughs> People just trying to keep their, you know, you know, work in the cane fields all day, just trying to get a little moment of peace with their, like, you know, seven children or whatever. And he's, like, <laughs> ripping the TV off the wall. <laughs> also, he must have been a big, strong guy, because back then a TV weighed 700 pounds, by the way. Like, Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been doing that a lot. It's like the TV was probably hot, too. Like, he's oh like, my God. That's, that's the level of you hate. Could- he's just picking it right up. <laughs> He doesn't care that it's burning his hands. <laughs> his bad back from ripping Tom and Jerry away he from children. Just get one kid, it's like, no, and then jumps also on him and is just dragging him. And the, the father comes in, like, whoa, whoa, what the fuck? What are you doing? <laughs> we'll doing buy that? the TV, you monster. You've got my child hostage. <laughs> okay, so here's another story. Not about his grandfather, but about his father, okay? Ted Cruz's father. And again, why is Ted Cruz sharing the story? Ask yourself that while we walk through it here. One time, my father and a friend decided to go fishing for a shark. The two boys got in a wooden rowboat, brought some rope with a chain leader, put a hunk of tuna on a large hook, and tossed it into the bright blue water. Sure enough, they ended up catching a shark about six feet long. 
The shark was none too happy, and he charged their boat, itself only about 10 feet long. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds just too specific. The shark's head rammed the boat and broke a hole in its bottom, which resulted in water flooding the boat. The boys panicked. They cut the rope, and one boy began bailing water while the other rode as fast as he could. The boat sank a few hundred feet from shore, and the boys swam and towed the boat to the beach, terrified that an angry shark was behind them looking for retribution. Thankfully, the shark had other priorities, and they emerged unscathed. But life in Cuba during those years wasn't just about fishing adventures. Revolution was in the air. That, uh, that's a real sentence he wrote. <laughs> Thankfully, the shark had other priorities and they emerged, so nothing happened to them. Okay? they, uh, they mm-hmm. you, Maybe it was a shark. The shark bumped into their boat, which is scary, sure. They got nothing, no damage. Life wasn't about just a funny fishing story. This is now his family and the revolution. <laughs> it's that's a good air. segue. And so that's like some like origin stuff from Ted Cruz. And then he, when I got to the actual part where he's saying the stuff, right, in the audiobook, mm. I found some mm-hmm. clips that I thought were really priceless. You know, this is Frosters, so we have to make sure that everyone's telling the truth. But listen to what Ted Cruz thinks about telling the truth. Telling the truth in Washington, D.C. is a radical act. And it earns you the enmity of career politicians in both parties. When you tell the truth about Washington, when you expose the fact that elected officials are misleading the voters who elected them, you pay a price. (laughs) Misleading the voters, right? Elected officials misleading the voters. Surely uh, we've never seen anything like that before from Ted Cruz. Maybe definitely not on January 6th. Yeah, I also like how just general that statement is. It's like he's not even he's not even going he's not even going vague enough to say that your politicians are all bought off by special special interest. He's not even saying that. Like yeah. it's just like telling the truth is a radical act. You know, do with that information what you will. <laughs> I guess you should infer that I'm telling the truth or who's lying like who's lying in that what's the he, lie? What kind of lies are being told? Like what who's misleading? He's always framing himself as the everyman. He's standing up to special interest. He stands up for the people of Texas and all this stuff. Um but even just to this point, on January sixth, Ted Cruz took to the Senate floor at you know, just before the insurrection started. With this. Recent polling shows that 39% of Americans believe the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. You may not agree with that assessment, but it is nonetheless a reality for nearly half the country. No. I would note it is not just Republicans who believe that. 31% of independents agree with that statement. So where where does the percentage so, in the 30s become half? Yeah, but even then, Justin, yeah. this I found where this is from and he clearly is lying, right? And here's yeah. how. These numbers were taken from an Ipsos poll uh, of just over 1300 respondents and he cherry-picked. It's actually the sum of two of the responses in the statement uh, that are and the the statement is I am concerned that the election is rigged. 
okay? 22% of the 1,300 said strongly agree. 17% said somewhat agree. He added those two numbers up to get 39. But here's the thing. If you look farther down, just three questions later, the question is, what comes close to your view of the 2020 election? 55 respondents of all the respondents said the election was legitimate and accurate. <laughs> Only 28% said that was a result of illegal voting or election rigging, which, you know, election rigging is very broad, of course. This is Ted Cruz. And it's and it's not the percentages of everyone, it's percentages of like registered voters. So it's yeah. the same when you go when you when you go down to like it was the same 28% that literally if you poll them the worst questions in the world, they always support it. It's the yeah. same 28% of people, which, but when you break that down to the entire population, it's actually uh, a little bit smaller than 28%. That's what we're finding out now, right? It's like, yeah, if you put like a bunch of Trump supporters in a place, it seems like this huge movement. But then when midterm elections come around, like they just, they all lose. <laughs> yeah. Because they're, they're, just- they're not as big a part of the population as uh, they think they are. Yeah, a slightly motivated voter base kind of takes these people out of the water because the extremes are so loud. Yeah. And and Ted Cruz constantly views himself as a man of these people as well. He represents them, but even he's just lying to them, very clearly lying to them. And he talks about being a grassroots fundraiser for his first Senate campaign in 2012 and, and that he also had to fight against the establishment then. But listen to the way he frames this, this part of it in his autobiography. Want to know why so many elected officials listen to party bosses instead of their constituents? Washington is corrupt. And control over D.C. money is a big part of it. Fortunately, my campaign was never dependent on financial support from giant corporations or K Street lobbyists. When I ran for Senate, almost all of them opposed me. After I was elected, we welcomed them. <laughs> but I never forgot for whom what I was What the fuck? Who would say that? It's I mean, these, he's covering his bases, I guess. He's just saying, it's not, I've never seen someone, there's two sentences, they both speak out of each side of his mouth, and somehow he's still a man of the people. We welcome their support. Uh, who did he actually welcome as he went through his Senate career and then and ended up running for office uh, in 2016? Here's some stuff from the Sunlight Foundation. Keep the Promise Pack raised over $3.5 million. Uh, isn't set up with one large contribution from a big donor, but it did receive several smaller but still huge checks from a handful of very wealthy individuals. The biggest donation, $1 million, came from a businessman and Tea Party mega donor. Richard Hewlin, Robert McNair, owner of the Houston Texans, sent him $500,000. But McNair also sent it to a bunch of other people like Jeb Bush, Lindsey Graham, Scott Walker. Another one, another pack he had, Keep the Promise One, raised over $11 million and all from one donor, Robert Mercer. Hmm, CEO of Renaissance Technologies. You, we all know about the Mercer family. We can get into them maybe next season. Keep the Promise Two. $10 million raised from Toby Neubauer. 
He's a wealthy energy investor and son of a Texas representative. But he knows who he works for. He doesn't work for this guy that just gave his campaign $10 million. Keep the promise three, nearly $16 million. And these are all from evangelical Christian groups. So this explains a lot of where he comes from as well. It's funded almost entirely by various members of the Wilkes family, Dan and Ferris Wilkes, are uh, their Texas-based billionaire brothers who made their money from fracking and inheriting their father's masonry business. And then the last one we'll talk about here, Stand for Truth, nearly $5 million. Uh, it came from um, a web of LLCs that no one can track. And a lot of them are linked <laughs> to healthcare company CEO, Ben Klein. But uh, he, he, he remembers who he works for. He remembers who he works for. These are the people that he, that he works for. Our campaign contributions came instead from tens of thousands of citizens in all 50 states. They were young people, small business owners, little old ladies sending in five or ten dollars so that we could stand together and change Washington. I like how he makes his his fundraising uh, sound like, uh, you know, like Howard Dean's fundraising. Or like, uh, <laughs> like you know, like Bernie Sanders like the first yeah, time yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, this is not small donors. It's it's Texas. <laughs> it's huge Texas money. <laughs> yeah, and even like whatever he got into Congress with, he immediately got in based on the vulnerability of people that thought he was going to fight for them or whatever, and then just sold out instantly, and yeah. tells on himself about it. That's. Even if you are a Ted Cruz supporter, he sold you out the second he got into the Senate, and he's telling you he did. It's, yeah. oh, I'm busy. I'm dizzy. I'm dizzy. Okay, so you we, know, he has, a, he has a little bit of that honest liar thing that uh, Trump has, though, right? Yeah, where it's like, yeah, just saying like, I don't pay taxes. I'm smart. You know what I mean? Like Ted Cruz has a little bit of that. He's just Ted Cruz is in his brazen about it. He kind of just like mixes it into his overall message. Yeah. No, I see that in him. It's it's like the American ingenuity is like how you kind of grift a little bit and everyone's in on it. Before we get to this interview with Lawrence Lessig, with Professor Lawrence Lessig, um, I have a little bit, I just have a little setup clip from the autobiography uh, where Ted Cruz is talking about money and politics because that's what really this this whole thing is about here with Ted Cruz. Money and politics and how it can, you know, it's a problem. Ted Cruz also thinks it's a problem. What I have done and what I intend to continue to do is speak the truth and explain how money and power in Washington conspires to create even more money and power for the politically connected at the expense of the hardworking tax. He is literally connected to Goldman Sachs. He has a credit line <laughs> with Goldman Sachs. <laughs> it was just- it's very funny seeing someone who, yeah, uh, probably when you go to Congress, he's like the most well-connected to special interests, like speak this way. It's just, it's very funny. All right, let's go to this interview with uh, Professor Lawrence Lessig. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Streaming. NetSuite.com slash streaming.
All right, joining us on Fraudsters is Professor Lawrence Lessig. He is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School, a former presidential candidate, and the only person to ever appear on this show who has been portrayed by Christopher Lloyd in the West Wing. <laughs> Professor Lessig, thank you for joining us on the show. I think that last credit is the best one, right? That's the most important one. <laughs> It's been downhill from then. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get right into it here. Uh, I read your book uh, a few years ago, Republic Lost, about how money corrupts Congress. Uh, and you wrote that back in 2016, right? Is that right? No, that was in 2011. Then it was 2011. A, there, was a, there was a second version, Republic Lost version two, that came out in 2016. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, so you probably read the you, second one. Yeah. I probably read the second one, right? So how did, how did we get to the point where we have the last presidential race, right? The the twenty twenty election costing four point fourteen point four billion. Uh, that's from OpenSecrets.org, and the top Senate races this last round um, costing Pennsylvania was over three hundred and seventy million, Georgia before the runoff over two hundred and seventy million, Arizona over two hundred and thirty million, Wisconsin over Wisconsin over two hundred million. Ohio over 200 million. How did we get to this point where hundreds of millions of dollars are being poured into these elections? Well, one thing that's true and more obvious is that if you can control government, you can make a lot of money um, for your businesses and your, uh, your special interests. And so it's become desperately important for these businesses to have the influence over candidates, especially members of Congress. You know, it's not, they don't have as much direct influence over presidents, but certainly members of Congress. Um, and that's why you see the explosion in spending, because we've created this really efficient vehicle for leveraging control, and that's the super PAC. And, and so long as we have the entity of the super PAC, which was created in 2010, you're going to see a continuing expansion and concentration of money from very few for the purpose of leveraging control over what Congress does. And a lot of folks talk about Citizens United as when things started really opening up. But it was kind of before that, right, that, that, that the money started to pour in. Well, it's certainly the case that money was growing substantially before Citizens United. I mean, I got into the fight um, before Citizens United because I thought it was critical that we find a way to change the way campaigns are funded. And at that point, it was obvious we needed that because we knew that members of Congress and candidates for Congress were spending anywhere between 30 and 70% of their time raising money. And as they did that, um, they were becoming extremely sensitive to the interests of that very tiny fraction, small fraction of the 1% that was funding them. Um, and that problem, you're right, was growing before Citizens United. Citizens United came, came along and, you know, frankly, many of us were wrong about the direct impact of Citizens United. We thought that mm. money would open up from corporations and they would spend endless money to affect political campaigns. Turns out corporations quickly discovered the high cost of free speech. Um, you know, Target, for example, supported a anti-gay governor candidate in Minnesota and all of a sudden found themselves being picketed all across the country. So they, corporations decided they didn't really have the stomach for it. But what happened in immediately after Citizens United, in a case called Speech Now, decided by the D.C. Circuit, never went to the Supreme Court, was that the court, uh, what D.C. Circuit said, that if you can spend unlimited amounts of money because of the First Amendment, 
You should be allowed to give unlimited amounts of money to an independent political action committee. And mm. that independent political action committee is what we now call the super PAC. And so what Citizens United began was the process of opening up these independent political action committees, which have now become the channel through which all of this money gets laundered um, to the end of just making it so that they can leverage and absolutely control what, what happens with these campaigns. Is there something in the foundation of America that, that lends itself to our country <laughs> letting all of this money come in, let, having the flow of corruption be so casual almost? You know, um, I wouldn't blame anything in the foundation of the country. I, I think it's much more recent. You know, if we want to blame people. We ought to blame people who are actually still alive. <laughs> and, okay, um, fair enough. <laughs> you know, and I think those people are people who've um, who've allowed uh, this, who, who've given up the idea that we ought to have citizens who have some equal role in their democracy. They don't actually believe that. They have a view that says that some people should have a more powerful role in their democracy. And those are people with money. And, um, and so they've like pushed for a, a jurisprudence that has protected the power of this tiny fraction of the 1%. Um, and as Congress has become dependent on this tiny power of the 1%, they've been happy to let this happen. So you've got this combination of uh, this conspiracy between the court and Congress um, you know, uh, which has allowed this system to evolve and no really effective um, uh, political movement to, to stop it. Um, we came close with the For the People Act, which got filibustered in Congress in the beginning of uh, the year, but nothing, you know, that's, that's, I think, inevitable. And we don't yet see political leaders taking this issue on in a way that would be effective. Do you mind actually talking about the For the People Act uh, for the listeners yeah. that don't know? Yeah, so the For the People Act was actually originally a campaign finance reform act started by John Sarbanes, who's a really incredible congressperson from uh, Maryland. And Sarbanes really after, so I met him just after my book came out in 2011, and he was just beginning to think about how to change how Congress was funded. And he spent um, a decade basically um, uh, popularizing inside of Congress the idea that they should adopt a small dollar matching system for funding campaigns. So, you know, if I give $100, it's matched. Um, originally, he was matching at nine to one, so it could be worth $1,000 to a candidate, which means the candidates would be interested in a wider range of people to help fund their campaigns, not just the people who could write checks for $1,000 or $2,700 or whatever. Um, and then as Sarbanes pushed this, he convinced Nancy Pelosi to make reform fundamental to her vision of her role as speaker. Um, and in 2018, she said that if the, the Democrats win control of Congress, she promised to pass what was then called the For the People Act um, uh, through Congress in 2019. And the For the People Act by this point included fundamental changes to the way campaigns were funded, gerrymandering reform, ethics reform for Congress, um, lots of changes, the John Lewis um, uh, voting rights bill was inside, lots of changes to end the suppression of the vote, which was driven largely either by race or by politics. It didn't really matter, just making it harder for the other side to participate. And had Congress passed that bill, 
I think it would have been the most important democracy reform package passed by Congress since the Voting Rights Act of 1965, at least. Um, um, but then, obviously, it ran up against the barrier of the filibuster and the barrier of um, Joe Manchin, who was not willing to modify the filibuster, and Kirsten Sinema, who embraces the filibuster as a positive good. Um, and so it couldn't pass Congress. Um, and so, you know, many people thought this was our best chance. Uh, and um, and we lost our best chance. Uh, and so I don't think many people think there's going to be much happening in Congress certainly in the next cycle, given how close the majority is, and we don't yet have a majority to end the filibuster. Yeah. So, Jess, do you have anything before we dive into the Supreme Court case? Yeah, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm just interested in kind of the partisan component of this, because it's one of those things where I think the Democratic Party, a lot of people will voice like support for it. But I think if it ever came to pass, like you get like enemies, like, like, it seems like there's always like a Joe Manchin or did you get a sense of how many people that are are, are in the Democratic Party are actually maybe not in favor of, of the reforms that you mentioned there? Yeah, I think this is a really great point. Um, I you know, we thought, and uh, I think, you know, maybe we we're just being naive, but we thought if we could, um, you know, get one or two more votes, um, we would, uh, we would, we would overcome the filibuster. And I think many people were saying, actually, if you lose, if you if you gain Manchin's vote or Cinema's vote, there would be two other people who would show up, <laughs> because <laughs> the filibuster is so valuable to the other side. Um, it gives them the capacity to block anything Congress would do. I mean, just think about the way the filibuster works, right? Filibuster right now, and this is brand new. This is since President Obama was president, when Mitch McConnell decided he would, uh, he would um, turn the filibuster into the normal rule for how the Senate works. So the normal rule for the Senate now is whenever there is any bill except for certain nominations and budget reconciliation, um, it needs 60 votes to even be debated. Okay, so what 60 votes means? 60 votes means if you have 41 votes, you can stop anything Congress would do. So 41 votes, um, if, you, if you imagine the 21 smallest states that supported Donald Trump by at least 10 points, so wow. the most extreme smallest states in America, those 21 states would give you 42 votes. So you can stop anything with those 21 states. And those 21 states would represent 21% of the American population. So 21%, representatives of 21% of the American population have the power to block anything our Congress does except for budget reconciliation, which is why the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act could pass. Um, now, that is astonishing. There is no other democracy in America, where, in the world, where ordinary legislation requires effectively an 80% <laughs> Um, population supporting it for it to be passed. And yet that's what our system does. The closest system to the current system we have right now is the system America lived under, under the Articles of Confederation. They had a supermajority requirement for ordinary legislation. That was a total failure. It was a total bust, which is why the nation almost collapsed. And Madison said, we need to rebuild a new kind of constitution, one committed to majoritarian rule. But all of that is lost on, you know, the modern geniuses in our United States Senate, Kirsten Sinema, who talks about the 60-vote threshold that is fundamental to the, the United States Senate. What it's fundamental to is the um, super PACs and the lobbyists 
who want to find a very simple way to be able to block anything our Congress would do, because God forbid our Congress have the capacity to address any interesting issue effectively. It's, yeah, it seems super convenient to say, oh, well, we need 60 votes, especially during a hyper-partisan period where you're, especially for the yeah. Democratic Party, you're never going to win those margins because, as you mentioned, no. the electoral map is just, like, not favorable. So, yeah, it becomes, like, this convenient excuse for, actually, Democrats to go, we're doing the will of the people by promising things that we, like, margins we could never win. I mean, God, even Trump, after the insurrection, didn't give us 60 Senate seats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we've got a runoff in Georgia. Can you imagine yeah. the world where <laughs> Warnock and... <laughs> Yeah, so yeah the, wor- the worst maybe. the worst candidates in the world are polling at 49 percent, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's the place we live in. Maybe Senator Cinema just wants us to be inclusive, just to bring us all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a stage in her life where I think that was a fair way to describe it. But, you know, I think cinema, the cynicism about cinema was crystallized when she almost blocked the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Because one mm. really astonishing thing in the Inflation Reduction Act and Joe Manchin did this, was that it ended this incredible loophole called the carried interest loophole, which is basically why hedge fund managers pay less taxes than their secretaries do, right? So Joe Manchin actually had the reform to to take that away so that they would have to pay the same level of taxes as any billionaire, right? Which is not very much, but still, it's more than what they are paying. And at the very last moment, Cinema said she was not going to support the Inflation Reduction Act, unless the carried interest reform was removed. Now, you know, I didn't hear any stories about Arizona citizens like rallying around the idea that we have to protect the hedge fund billionaires from increased taxes. Like that was never anybody's concern anywhere in the world. Yet it was her concern because a bunch of lobbyists walked into her office and said, you know, there's a lot of money who would be very, would be very interested in seeing this, this reform scuttled. So she scuttled it. They had to settle for it. And you know, there is no carried interest reform. The hedge fund managers still pay lower tax rates um, than uh, their secretaries. I don't know what town halls you're going to, but when I'm in rural Arizona, all I hear is uh, people saying, I'm real concerned with the hedge fund managers. we got to make sure that we're... Uh... Who speaks for them? Well, I, I should get out of the... You know, I live in the ivory tower, so maybe I should get down. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, you get with the people, Professor. Um, but uh, let's... Okay, let's talk about Ted Cruz for Senate, or FEC v. Ted yeah. Cruz for Senate. This uh, very strange... Supreme Court case. And and apparently there's a statute that says you can't use post-election funds to pay off more than $250,000 of pre-election funds. Is, is, is that, did I re- describe that debt. correctly? Yeah, debt, and, right, and right. Why is that important and how did they come up with $250,000? Well, you know, the number 250 is just arbitrary. What they're trying to do is to make sure that you can't basically evade the limits by running up a debt which you then pay after the campaign. And in this debt, this context in particular, it was a debt personal to Ted Cruz. Um, and what Ted Cruz knew, because he's a darling very smart of the lawyer. Senate, by the way, we, yeah, darling. darling of the everybody Senate. loves him. Yeah, everybody, everybody. loves him. Um, uh, um, uh, what Ted Cruz knew, I mean, he's a smart lawyer, um, is that under the standard the Supreme Court has evolved for evaluating regulations of campaign finance there was no way this standard could survive. Because what the Supreme Court standard is, is you can only regulate 
money in politics if you're regulating quote-unquote corruption. And uh, corruption is defined as quid pro quo corruption. So you have to be making a deal, an improper deal. And, and in this case, it's like, well, you know, Ted Cruz is making a deal with himself, which, you know, might be corrupt because it's Ted Cruz, but it's not the kind of corruption that the Supreme Court was talking about. So what this means basically is that the you know, you can't limit the way you're going to pay off a debt to the candidate because basically that's not going to ever be um, quid pro quo corruption. And the, the the main issue that they presented was whether Cruz had standing even. Can you explain to listeners how Ted Cruz even was able to bring this case in the first place? Right. Well, you know, the, the Supreme Court has a pretty um, flexible doctrine. And by flexible, I mean it appears when they want it to appear and disappears when they want it to disappear. But uh, the doctrine basically um, is supposed to limit the, num- the kinds of people who can bring claims to the courts to those who have an actual uh, um, uh, conf- uh, interest at stake. So a personal interest in uh, matter as opposed to people who just have a general interest in the matter. And, uh, and the question was whether Ted Cruz's interest was personal enough. And I don't think there was a real mistake in like, giving him the chance to, to challenge the statute, because he did have an interest given the debt that was present. Um, I just think that uh, um, you know, what this again shows is the stupidity of a Supreme Court doctrine that says the only kind of corruption you can be worried about is this quid pro quo corruption, because obviously, you know, there's a lot more corruption on the field than just quid pro quo corruption. And we ought to be making sure that we have a system people can trust because they have confidence in the people inside the system. So and again, I think the Supreme Court also is defining quid pro quo as like some sort of like absurd cartoonish quid pro quo of like, hello, Senator. Uh, I will give you this money for your votes. And then the Senate's like, absolutely. Is that's really yeah. what they're describing? That's exactly right. And what everybody <laughs> who studies Congress knows is that that almost never happens. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's some extreme cases, like a very stupid representatives who like write down yeah. on pieces of paper, uh, you know, here's how much you have to pay me to get that. Like those, ha- there have been those prosecutions, you know, right. but those are like one in a thousand. Like yeah, what like is- Blagojevich, what is, right? Blagojevich, I mean, you know, here's a Senate seat. Here's how much you have to pay for the Senate seat. Um, um, The kind of corruption that happens all the time is the sort of corruption that, you know, you don't have to say anything. Like, you know, I say, I'm going to have a fundraiser for you, Senator, and we're going to bring a bunch of people together who are really interested in your views about, you know, depreciation policies on, you know, assets that corporations over the size of $10 million might have to pay. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to put two and two together. Okay, you're going to raise a million dollars for me from people who care about depreciation on assets greater than $10 million. The next time that issue comes before me, I know what I got to do. Like, I don't need you to tell me this for that. Um, And and more importantly, you know, um, uh, I think the more important issue is the way it affects the agenda, because, mm-hmm. you know, Leslie Byrne, who was a Democrat from Virginia, described that when she went to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green. And then to clarify, she went on, you know, he was not an environmentalist. <laughs> and the point she was making is <laughs> you just have to think to yourself, how does this interest, this issue affect money? 
And I just need to make sure I don't get on the wrong side of the money on this issue. Because if I'm on the wrong side of the money, then I'm going to see all the money going in on the other side. So you, you know which issues you can talk about. You know which issues you can address. You know which issues you have to find a way to bury. And so surprise, surprise, the issues that get addressed are the ones that benefit the money story, and the issues that get buried are the ones that don't. Man, it gets better and better. So Ted Cruz, in this case, though, he wanted to basically be able to have his – he wanted to loan more money to his campaign and then just get paid after the election. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I have some clips from oral arguments that I'd love Great. to play. And I, I don't know about you. Maybe it's because I went to law school. I love <laughs> me some oral arguments. I think yeah, it is great. like you get so such a great look into, you know, just hearing what the justices are, how their gears are working, and then also how important a solicitor general is and the lawyers that are yeah. arguing these cases, which Ted Cruz, by the way, argued nine Supreme Court cases, which is terrifying to me that they would even <laughs> let this man in the room. <laughs> but that be said, this is America. All right, so... Uh, Justice Barrett asked um, Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart on the benefit that Cruz was receiving. He says that this doesn't enrich him personally because he's no better off than he was before. It's paying a loan, not lining his pocket. He's certainly no better off than he was before the loan was made. But the, the whole thrust of his argument is... After a loan has made has been made, there may be a legal entitlement to be repaid, but there will often be practical uncertainty about whether repayment will actually occur. And that uncertainty may be sufficiently burdensome as a practical matter that some candidates will not make the loan at all for fear that they'll be left holding the bag. And so a contributor who eliminates that uncertainty, who pays in the money that ensures that the debt will actually be repaid, is conveying a, a financial benefit to the candidate, just as if a gift had been made. So tell me about that. He, he's the, the Solicitor General there is basically saying that there is a benefit. There, there is. It's just yeah. like any other gift that he's getting. And by the way, Ted Cruz has access to huge credit lines with Goldman Sachs and other places that he was able to pull from for this. Uh, can you respond to that a little bit? Right. So let's just make sure the facts are clear, right? So... Um, if you're running a campaign and all of a sudden your campaign manager says, we need another $10 million if we're going to win, you can, on the one hand, go out to the public and raise $10 million. Or you can call a bank and say, will you loan me $10 million? And they'll say, who are you? And you say, I'm Ted Cruz. And he's like, OK, that's fine. We'll give you $10 million. Because what we know, especially after the Supreme Court case, is after you win, assuming you're going to win, and we think you're Ted Cruz and likely to win, after all, it's Texas, which thinks that Greg Abbott should be governor rather than uh, <laughs> Beto O'Rourke, um, uh, we, we're pretty sure you're going to win. Um, we know that what you can do is turn to all the people who depend on your vote now and say to them, oh, my gosh, I've got this $10 million debt. And, you know, I'm only paid a couple hundred thousand dollars as a senator. So how am I ever going to deal with this debt? And they're willing to then contribute the money the campaign needs in order to be able to enable the campaign to pay you back. And more interestingly, you know, you've got a list of people who supported you and a list of people who supported your opponent. Okay, so after the election, you call up the ones who supported your opponent and you say, geez, I noticed you gave $5,800 to the guy who I just beat. Um, 
you know, you can still send money to me. And of course, all of these guys are keen to get on the right side of the man who's now the incumbent. So all of this funding is obviously incentivized. But the critical question for the Supreme Court is, is there a quid pro quo? Is there some idiot, Blagojevich, who says, and if you give me this money, by the way, I'll get you the following tax cuts. And, you know, whatever Ted Cruz is, he's not that stupid. So no, there's no quid pro quo. And so there's no quote unquote corruption, according to the United States Supreme Court. But there's obviously um, this structure of funding that makes these members extremely sensitive to what these potential funders might care about. And the petitioning party here, Ted Cruz for Senate, they, they were saying that this is an abridging of free speech. And Justice Kagan uh, was disputing that, it seemed, and saying that this was merely just a restriction on third party funding. Let's go to that clip here. Of course, Mr. Cooper's candidate can spend all the money he wants um, of his own money. I mean, put aside the loan question. He can spend a gazillion dollars of his own money if he wants to on his campaign, right? That's true. So, like so, Constitution. I'm sorry? Under the First Amendment. Uh, so, uh, so this restriction, which is a restriction on loan repayment, is really a restriction on um, how a candidate can use third parties to finance his speech, isn't it? Your Honor, no more so than any other campaign contribution. Correct. Every time. Every- I, I, think, I think that that's exactly right. It's a restriction on how a candidate can use third parties to finance his speech, which is exactly what contribution limits are. From the candidate's perspective, it's one and the same thing. Is that is that right? No, Your Honor. A loan is clearly a form of self-financing by the candidate, obviously to whatever extent. Whatever extent that that loan is not repaid, it does become a contribution. But the important thing is... I guess I don't that- really quite understand the distinction. If, if, uh, if this is a restriction on how a candidate can use third parties to finance a speech, not a restriction on how the candidate finances his own speech, but a restriction on third-party financing of the campaign, why isn't it completely identical to contribution limits, which we have a well-established set uh, law, which is very different from our law respecting expenditures? Your Honor, when when a candidate loans his own money to his own campaign, to purchase speech, to increase the amount of expression in the advocacy of his own uh, election, as Buckley protects, that candidate is calling upon the candidate's own financial wherewithal. But it's wherewithal. not the candidate's own financial wherewithal. It's fake money. It's just money that just appears out of nowhere. Like, I could take out a double mortgage against my house. That's not actually my money, though, right? You know, the hardest thing as a lawyer, especially arguing in the Supreme Court, is to pretend like you're answering a question (laughs) that you know you are just not answering and to do it with all earnestness and seriousness. Oh, Your Honor, this is. But no, you know, I'm not answering your question because I can't answer your question. If I answer your question, my candidate, my client loses. Right. What Elena was saying, what Justice Kagan was saying is that. The real person limited here, and this is where the standing issue became so important, the real person limited here was those poor people who were not allowed to contribute to Ted Cruz's campaign to pay off his debt. Those poor people have had their speech restricted. 
Well, what is the speech that is being restricted here? It's their ability to give a bunch of money to a to a to a politician. Um, now, you know, they're giving the money not to his campaign to spend on ads they're giving it to the campaign so that they can pay off Ted Cruz's debt. And she was saying she can't see the difference. And, you know, she's a smart person. And I'm not going to say I see something that she can't see because I don't really see the difference either. Except that, um, you know, what the court is thinking in the back of their head is whatever it is, I don't really see the quid pro quo here or the fear that the public will perceive it even as quid pro quo, just because I think the public, you know, the court is basically saying they think the public is stupid. It's almost willful ignorance by the court. Yes, of course. At least the majority. Yeah. Yeah. So, but... Yeah. Go ahead, Justin. And, and I did not go to law school, for the record, but I just want to say anytime <laughs> I hear purchase and speech in as like the same thing, like I'm like immediately horrified at even that yeah. as a concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of my favorite things about these oral arguments is that, you know, Justice Kagan, uh, among like Sotomayor as well, but Justice Kagan here, she just can ether someone, and it's hilarious. And we, it doesn't show up on the news. This is, this is no one, no one on CNN's t- playing this clip. You're getting it here on fraudsters. We're going, <laughs> but here's one exactly. more clip yeah. that I think is really just. My wife was like, "What are you laughing so hard about?" I was like, "Justice Kagan." So here's here's what uh, here's what I think really wraps everything up in a bow. Um, I, I guess this puzzles me. If I have a debt of ten thousand dollars, and somebody comes along and says, "You're doing such a good job. I'm going to reap. I'm going to pay that debt off for you," isn't that a financial benefit to me? Of course, it's a gift. And that would be, you're describing a gift, but the repayment of a loan, Your Honor, is not a gift. But but a third party is repaying my loan, and so the third party is providing a gift to me. Your Honor, uh... uh, I mean, that's just like, of course, right? Your Honor, if a third party says you're doing such a good job, I want to repay your loan for you. I mean, one day I had a $10,000 loan. The next day I don't. I'm $10,000 richer. Somebody just made me a $10,000 gift. Uh. Your Honor, uh, <laughs> if, if a contributor uh, comes in and gives the, can- the candidate a $10,000 gift, then yes, that, uh, that violates not just the gift statutes, but, but if, if there's a quid pro quo involved, the bribery statutes. This is a... We're, well, that's we're the entire point of con- this law. I mean, the entire point of this law is that we start getting worried when people start repaying the candidate's indebtedness because that's just another way of putting money say, in his pocket. If anyone wants to pay the rest of my law school debt, I'll do anything. <laughs> I'll say anything you want. I'll do anything, but it won't be uh, it won't be a gift, though. <laughs> Professor, tell please break that down. Make that make sense for me. No, I'm not going to do okay, that. Got That's it. not okay. going to make sense. There's no way to make that make sense. Um, but you know, here, I mean, Cooper's a pretty good lawyer. Even here, you could see he was kind of stuck because yeah. obviously, what Kagan is saying is true. You're giving a gift to the candidate. Now, what he should have said, and it's amazing he didn't get there was, well, no, actually, um, the candidate was just as well off before as after because the candidate was owed $10,000 from the campaign. And so he was either going to get it from the campaign, he was going to get it from this guy. So he's in the same position he was um, either way. 
But the reality is, what we all know, the reality is, is, you know, campaigns run up $10 million in debt. They're not going to be able to raise that money in the ordinary way by going out to ordinary people and saying, please give me money so I can pay off the debt to Ted Cruz. Um, so instead, they've got the debt being paid by these third parties, which turns out to be a gift. Malcolm Stewart, um, in the earlier exchange, um, uh, made this point very clearly, where he was saying there's an uncertainty about whether the debt is going to be paid off. Like, so my campaign owes me $10,000. Whether the campaign can pay me or not is a function of how much money they have. And if they don't have that money, then maybe they can raise it, maybe they can't. So there's, let's say, a 50% chance they won't be able to raise it. Well, if there's a 50% chance, then if you come in and you pay my $10,000 debt, it's as if you've given me a $5,000 check, because now the 50% chance that it won't be paid off has been removed. And there's a 100% chance it's going to be paid off because you just paid it off. So it is absolutely a gift like this. But again, the court is so obsessed with the quid pro quo that it's even beginning to question limitations on gifts to candidates. Justin, any feelings on that? <laughs> By the way, Professor Lessig had his eyes closed during that last clip, shaking his head. I just want we got to start a poor people's super PAC if we collect like $1 from every person and then maybe we can afford like a yacht that we can drop off that, and then go, we don't want anything for this. It was just, you know. But here's your yacht. Yeah. Here's your yacht. Mansion. You the Mansion would like that. He lives on a yacht, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Professor, now that we've, you know, in that case, obviously uh, broke for Ted Cruz. And now, uh, presumably right now, any candidate can go and take out as much money as they possibly can financially that anyone will loan them and loan it to their campaign and get it paid back at any amount of time after the campaign. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's obviously really valuable for people who are pretty likely to win. Now, why does that matter? Well, you know, if you're if you're really likely to win and you want to help your party, you might take out, you know, a lot of money and um, then your campaign can give a bunch of money <laughs> or it can spend a bunch of money on behalf of like the Democratic candidates or the Republican candidates in your district. And um, and they might or may not uh, might not win. So they might not be able to raise the money back themselves. But you now have the debt. And once you're reelected, you can turn around and, you know, extort money out of the people who depend on you to do your job. You know, the one thing I find that's so valuable about the corruption framework around what's going on here is that you can always get both sides to see the corruption. Like, so if you talk about the extortion politicians leverage against people who depend on the government doing their job, people on the right get it. I mean, they understand the way businesses can be shaken down by government when government says, you know, I need you to do this if I'm going to like be interested in funding whatever project you depend on. Um, and that's what that's what basically this is. It's a extortion protection uh, ruling, and it protects the extortion of politicians of, you know, not poor people. So poor people don't have to worry about this, but certainly <laughs> businesses and and rich people are going to have to worry about the fact that any politician can call them now and say, you know, I got this 50 million dollar debt in my campaign and I don't know what I'm going to do about it, because the answer to that observation is, I know what I'm going to do about it, Senator. Um, I'll take care of it for you. <laughs> so we are now in mid-November, just after the midterm elections. The Democrats have uh, held on to the Senate. Uh, they could <laughs> hold on to the House. It's debatable right, which way that'll go. 
Is there a policy solution here, even given how gridlocked or how close the uh, breakdown will be between Republicans and Democrats, to try to push back against the Supreme Court? Could they legislate something, or what is the policy solution to something like this that could happen, given the environment we're in today? Well, I think that there's work to be done expanding the conception of what gifts are regulated. Uh, and, and I think that's where Kagan was pointing. Um, but the reality is there's zero chance that anything like that passes this Congress so long as Mitch McConnell is in charge of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Because Mitch McConnell has taken it on himself to completely decimate campaign finance regulations. Even though, you know, if you read his first speeches when he was first running for public office, he was obsessed with the corrupting influence of money. He talked about this all the time. And he said, we got to clean up Washington from all of this corrupting influence of money. Then he got there and he realized, this is my way to power, like to just become the most efficient. (laughs) Yeah. And so he has done everything he can to destroy campaign finance regulations. So McConnell versus FEC was a very famous case that basically decimated some of the most important parts of the McCain-Feingold campaign uh, BICRA um, from the... um, um, you know, the late uh, uh, 90s, early 2000s. Um, and, uh, and he has directed um, the appointment of the FEC commissioners from the Republican Party who have refused to enforce the law, either just not showing up so there is no quorum or just blatantly looking the other way when there's plain violations of the law. And he defends all this because he believes there should be no regulation of money in politics. He thinks that's a fundamental value. So when you say, are we going to pass campaign finance regulations um, in, a, in a Senate that still has a filibuster? No, we're not going to pass campaign finance regulations so long as the Senate has a filibuster because Mitch McConnell will stop it from happening. And last question for you. Is the solution a constitutional convention? I know you've talked about that before. Well, that's, that's a hard question to answer in a minute. Um, I think it's clear... <laughs> It's absolutely clear there's no way Congress is going to ever pass the con- proposed constitutional amendments to address this. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there's a way to convene a convention that we could trust. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about that someday. But, that, but, but right now, the scary thing about a convention is that people don't think you can trust it to stay focused yeah. on whatever you call it for. Um, I think the thing we have to work on um, is getting a filibuster um, repealing Senate into the United States Senate. Um, and, you know, obviously that's not going to happen even if Warnock wins. Um, we'll have 51 votes. Um, and uh, basically we had that before because the ties would be decided by the vice president. Um, and we don't see any indication that Kirsten Cinema has learned that the 60 vote threshold is actually not in her po- pocket constitution. Or maybe somebody gave her a fake constitution that she's reading. Um, <laughs> and that's what she's so excited about. So unless those things change, we're not going to get that passed. And so maybe after the next presidential election, but that's pretty optimistic and, and depressing because there's so much we've got to do to address every other issue that there is in the world, from climate change to student debt to whatever, that we just won't be able to do so long as our politics is so fundamentally gridlocked by money. Professor Lessig, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure. We do hope you come back because we are obsessed with talking about corruption and fraud and what better place than politics to talk about it. So I appreciate you having me. Thanks.
All right, welcome back. Thank you so much again, Professor Lawrence Lessig, for that amazing interview. What a pleasure it was to have him on the show. Justin, we're wrapping up our Ted Cruz and our Campaign Fraudsters series here. I'm excited about our next episode on Candace Owens. But before we go, I did want to cover some mean tweets or mean quotes. But they aren't tweets. They are Ted Cruz reading things people have said about him in the media and putting them in his own autobiography. <laughs> and I, I, as if this man is not shockingly shameless enough, he read the, just the one chapter, but he included some mean things that people said about him as if it's like a badge of pride or something. But here are some clips. Democratic candidate for governor of Texas, Wendy Davis, has more balls than <laughs> Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz came here to throw bombs and fundraise off of attacks on fellow Republicans. He's a joke, plain and simple. He's an amateur, a fraud, a hypocrite, a wacko. We all agree with these things. These are all, <laughs> this is... <laughs> this is you. This is there an enneagram for this type of person? It's incredible. This is him. Yeah, he's. I mean, I don't know what the strategy. The strategy there is very great. He like co-ops every argument about him with him. You know, it's again. It's like I see. You know, it's as much as I don't like him. I do actually see sort of his skill as a politician. Yeah. In the way that he's, you can't say he's not transparent. And no, he's just sort very of, yeah. skilled. It's Jim Dement without the charm. <laughs> All of those things were said by Republicans. <laughs> you really, you, you are the sum of the people you hang out with most, I guess, right? <laughs> no, but it's great. It's like, if even if, you know, he just takes the fact that so many people in the Republican Party don't like him, and he uses it to frame yeah. himself as an outsider, even though right. he's really institutional power. It's like, it's, it's pretty brilliant, right? He makes himself almost sound like he's some kind of maverick independent when he's like not. He'll literally toe the line of whatever the Republican Party's doing, even when he protests. Yeah, one thing I wanted to bring up before we got this, like, remember Ted Cruz at the Republican National Convention in 2016 actually gives a rogue speech that doesn't even mention Donald Trump. And when it comes to the point to where you normally endorse the nominee, he just says, vote your conscience. Oh, because yeah, yeah, wow. he he literally undercuts Trump at the Republican National Convention. It was a huge, huge controversy because he went out there and went into business for himself, and it was like he was distancing himself from Trump because he didn't think he was going to win, and he was still probably mad at him for what he did, you know, during the campaign and stuff in order to win the nomination, right? But then right. to see him covering for him at the Capitol riot, that's like I think that puts Ted Cruz that 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 really puts it all in a box, right? The guy that will go, like, go into business for himself, hedge his bets, and then when he sees that it goes the other way, he's then defending the very people that he was hedging against, you know? It's so insane. And he's willing to even go to, like, the convention and, and like, you know, cause chaos if he, if he that he was really trying to, right? You know, stop a giant, important uh, event for his party just for himself. I mean, it's – and then just backtrack on all of it. Well, that's why I love the Republican National Convention because, you know, somebody always goes into business for themselves, right? Um, remember, Chris Christie did that when he had the keynote. He just, like, never mentioned the nominee. 
<laughs> Chris Christie just ran for president during his keynote. Oh my speech. god, what are they going to do this year? Oh god, this upcoming year is going to be oh lordy. Well, Trump fixed that though. Trump made it sure that it was like if you didn't say the Donald Trump at the end of every sentence, like Kimberly <laughs> Guilfoyle. Yeah. Then you couldn't out. even get up there. Yeah, yeah. All right, everyone. Next week, we're going to be covering Candace Owens. That's right. Ariel's going to be back with us to do that series. That'll be super fun. That'll be the start of our Race Hustler series. We'll do one of those and then talk about some other stuff and then come back to that series as well. Thanks for listening. This has been so fun. At Fraudsters LPN on social media, at Fraudsters LPN at gmail.com. Send us a note. Join our Discord. We're having a really fun time in there talking about all the insanity that's happening around the world and how scammy it all is. Uh, you can find the link to our Discord in any of our social media bios. I'm Cena Gadsby at Cena Now, Justin Williams at Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy. This episode was produced by Carrie Budge, edited by Carlos Fonseca. Our legal intern is Demetrios Metellus. And special thanks to Professor Lawrence Lessig. What an amazing time we had with you. Thank you so much. We hope you come back on the show. This has been a production of Zero Cool and The Last Podcast Network. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Bravo. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries for a limited time. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison of prior classic burgers. ba ba ba